This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hey community, Ayana here. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to share an exciting project the For the Wild team has been tending for the past few years. Some of you may remember an episode called The Day the Water Died, back in 2018 with Dune Lankard a tribal elder of the Eak Eagle Clan, and lifelong conservationist. Well, that interview changed my life. I ended up rafting down the Copper River in Alaska with Dune that summer, and since then, we've been deep in strategy around protecting the temperate rainforest, glaciers, and waters of his ancestral homelands. Right now, we face a pivotal moment in Dune's 20-year struggle to preserve 11,000 acres of the Bering River coalfield, which remains extremely vulnerable to mountaintop strip mining under its current private ownership. Dune and his organization, Native Conservancy, have a short window of time to purchase the coal title and to halt resource extraction. We are putting out the call for large donors, organizations, foundations, or those who may be connected to such funders to be in touch with us to partner in protecting the Copper River Delta. This is big. This could mean the permanent protection of 3 million acres downstream of one of the wildest places left on the earth. The enduring subsistence of the Eak people and their salmon, eagle, bear, and all the other more than human kin depend on it. There is a powerful shift afoot in the land back movement, and we are here for it. Get in touch at engage at forthewild.world and visit nativeconservancy.org. This is what he said. And I lift my glass to the awful truth that you can't reveal to the ears of youth except to say that it isn't worth a dime. And the whole damn place goes crazy twice. And it's once for the devil. And it's once for Christ. And the boss don't like these dizzy heights. And we're busted in the blinding lights of closing time. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying 
Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust? Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, founded in 2010 for anyone with a desire to be useful to those who will inherit an endangered and often dangerous world. It is for those who have an instinct and a desire to be an ancestor worthy of being claimed. It is for those wishing to learn something of the skills of grace in a graceless time, of mentorship and fierce and exemplary compassion. It is for those elders in training. He is the author of Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul, Angel and Executioner, Grief and the Love of Life, and Money and the Soul's Desire, a meditation. Stephen Jenkinson is also the subject of the feature-length documentary film Grief Walker, a lyrical, poetic portrait of his work with dying people. Stephen lives in a handmade, off-the-grid life on a farm beside the River of Abundance and Time in the Ottawa Valley in Ontario, Canada. Well, welcome back to For the Wild, Stephen. It is such a gift to be sharing space with you in this way again. You're very kind. Thanks for the invitation. Since we last spoke, you have composed a new book, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, which is to be released this summer. And I listened to a recent interview, and it led me to reflect upon how dominant culture neither encourages nor celebrates elderhood. Instead, it exalts youthfulness. And I think this obsession with youth is entwined with capitalist ideals of limitless growth. In this interview, you said, quote, elderhood is a consequence of life's limits, not life's extensions and victories. So, Stephen, I'd love you to open up this conversation by speaking about your case for elderhood and what transpires in its cultural vacancy. <laughs> okay. You want to start off easy and then we'll get to the tricky stuff later, <laughs> is it? Precisely. Okay. Well, let's see what we can do with this. I mean, it's a very, your question cuts a wide swath, of course, even though you've quoted me in there somewhere. But let me start with something maybe easier to approach and not so conceptual. And it's something like this. Why did I take on, was I drawn to this subject or how did this come about? And you could say, well, you know, you're 63. It's kind of in the territory. You'd Well, a lot of 63-year-olds don't write about elderhood. In fact, virtually none of them do, in English at least maybe in other languages I know nothing of. So there's the first thing. I mean, I look around, as I did when I worked in the death trade, and I looked around for some sign, some indication that the dominant culture and all of its citizens were kind of in the ballpark of what was happening. Not on top of it necessarily, because who can be these days? But at, at the very least, that there was a combination of curiosity and something like concern that drove people in the direction of what's happening now. 
I don't mean what's current and sexy now. I mean what's happening. You can't go to the news for that. You have to be remarkably discerning and have the capacity for a real cultivated discipline. Or as I've often threatened the people in my Orphan Wisdom School, one day the reading list is going to be 20 books long and the assigned question will be, what's not in any of the books that you've read? So this is how I came to it. I simply wondered, where's the elderhood function to be found? Because early on, that was my first take on it, that elders are not personality types. You know, they're not in nice gowns and, you know, nicely coiffed hair or no hair at all, depends on your style and things of this kind, that they're not, in fact, elderhood doesn't really have much regard for or use for, or maybe even ways of employing particular personality types. But maybe it's a function instead of a person. Maybe it's a way instead of a thing done. That's what I started to wonder about. So needless to say, I looked and I looked and I looked in vain for something like a concerted, ongoing, recognizable elder function in the culture. And here's the irony I came upon very, very quickly. We, no news to anyone listening to this or yourself, this is an aging population in North America. And for the next, I don't know, 15 or thereabouts years, that will be the case that the lion's share of the population will be over, I don't know, 50, whatever the numbers are. You would think then, let's do the obvious math on it. If you have more old folks per square foot than you've ever had before, which we do numerically and as a ratio of the population, it would stand to reason then that we would have more elders than ever before, or would it? Or does it? Even better, because it's not hypothetical. You know, I could simply ask you, is it your experience that the culture that has given you your education and your concerns and your style options and everything in between has provided you with so much elder presence in your life that you actually need a break from it because you're forever guided by its presence and its affable wisdom and its time-tested abilities and its sustainability. I mean, this I'm asking this somewhat in jest because I'm guessing you wouldn't even have this podcast and you wouldn't be having me on it if that was true about your life personally that you were awash in the presence of elders in your life. So so how can this be then, that we got more old people than ever before, and we don't have a commensurate presence of elders in that demographic? Well, it's in the reasoning where you look for the gap or the shortfall. You don't look for it in the old people per se. You ask yourself this instead, from whence comes elderhood? Does it come from age? Does it come from the sort of cumulative sort of blunt force trauma of the thing that we call experience? Is elderhood an inevitable consequence of an aging population? And I think the answer to all those questions is no. It's none of those things. As it turns out, our reliance upon experience as the midwife of elderhood has put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, culturally speaking. Because it imagines that sheer endurance confers wisdom. Let's just call it experience. Experiences and wisdom 
They're not synonymous, nor does one inevitably give over to the other. In fact, enough experience in one place and one person produces trauma just as likely as it produces wisdom. And then the next thing is to wonder, well, what is this wisdom thing if it's not the cumulative consequence of just a lot of experience? Well, you know, you and I are contributing to the dilemma surrounding wisdom right now as we're speaking, because uh, the notion of wisdom has been so desperately, let's call it democratized through the, the new media that's available in the last, I don't know, 15 years or something, that instead of an understanding of wisdom, what we have is a kind of marketplace jangle of opinion. The understanding being that if enough opinion is out there, you hear the theme again, if there's enough opinion out there, wisdom will just kind of inevitably out itself and emerge and become inherently useful. Well, uh, we're a little bit we're well into the experiment of social media now. And I would dare say that our encounters with wisdom are no more numerous now as a result of this media than they were before it. If anything, the notion of wisdom itself has taken a hit. Okay, so if you add all of the, I go on of course, but if you add all of this up, I'm answering the question from whence came my concern about the book. It found its parallel. You mentioned Diewise kindly earlier on, which came out about three years ago now, which was a book ostensibly about dying. But it wasn't really. It was about the refusal to die in the dominant culture of North America. And the reasoning, the parallel reasoning that informed my approach to come of age came to this. You have more dying people. When you have an old aging population, you have more dying people per capita than you've ever had before. I don't know anyone that even says that out loud. But if you are, as a culture, you devote your technology to the life extension business, be not surprised you look up one day to realize that there are more dying people around you than there have ever been because they're not dying, you see. They're not dead, I should say. They remain dying. And they can be dying for an awful long time. And often they are. So. We have that much more dying around us. Should that not translate into kind of a death wisdom, a death friendly way of life, death literacy and things of that kind by sheer exposure to it? Well, <clears throat> that's not what I saw. That's not what prompted me to write the book. I wrote the book because I looked in vain for some a death wisdom that was that was deriving from all of this presence of death among us, you see. It was then that I realized, oh yeah, cumulative consequence is not the same thing as cause. We have more death around us than ever before, more death programs, more death on the front page, more death books, and I've contributed to all of that stuff. And the upshot is that it seems to me people are dying more devastated deaths than they did even 15 or 20 years ago. A direct consequence of there being more death around us. So it's absolutely confounding until you begin to wonder about your basic assumption of where understanding comes from. So that's, that's what prompted me towards it all. And no surprise, at least not to me, that when I came around to the subject of elderhood, I was doing so as a kind of effort to wonder how we might achieve, obtain guidance, 
unto our dying time and unto our limits. And then it hit me, and I'll finish with this. I know you're thinking, my God, I'm never going to be asked another question in this interview. He's just going to keep going. Well, that is true. I could because it's close to my soul. But, but anyway, this is, what, this is what hit me. You have all of these old folks, and there, there are so many of them because their lives have been extended. And I guess I'm, if things continue to go as they've gone, I'm about to join the ranks and not too long from now. And we have fewer elders, and it could be that those two things are linked causally, meaning that if you have a lot of old people, it's because the natural limits, the naturally occurring limits of the human lifespan are being confounded. Now, people might say extended, but I think confounded is a better way of understanding what's actually happening. Take one more step, and the loop begins to close desperately and beautifully at the same time. And it's this. Could there be something about the God-givenness or the natural order-givenness of limits upon human life, including its lifespan? But not only that, is there something about limits that create elderhood in our midst? I think the answer is almost certainly yes. How can I tell? Because when I look at our limit-confounding life, I see that we are running desperately short of elders. And it struck me that there's something about our unwillingness to live according to limits of all kinds that confound the elder function to the point where after a couple of generations of this confounding, there is no functioning social body or order called elderhood anymore. And 50 and 60 and even 70-year-olds are lining up at the trough, at the uh, self-help center, at the retreat center, looking for the same things that 20 and 30 and 40-year-olds are looking for. And that might be a sign by which we, our era today, will be recognizable in time to come as a particularly confounded era. Wow, Stephen, I'm so mesmerized by the idea of limits in this dominant culture and how that relates to elderhood, but honestly, how that relates to the predicament that we find ourselves in right now in the Anthropocene, dealing with climate change and how our denial of limits, how our desire to not live by limits have led us to, to this place. And you were mentioning how there are more elderly people than ever before, both in sheer numbers and as a percentage of the population. And then that means that these people are dying without dignity or unwisely. And I wonder, what are the collective spiritual consequences of this? And are there places you're seeing promise for resurgence of elderhood in modern civilization? Well, you know, I'm not really the promise guy. I'm not really the hope guy. I, I think you probably... <laughs> and I love that about you. <laughs> you have a clear sense of that. Not a lot of fun at parties. And of course, I don't get invited to them anyway. <laughs> but um, not that I'm asking. I'm just observing that. Well, here's the thing. First of all, you're kind enough to ask me to appear on your program, but this does not confer upon me or anything I say some kind of timeless 
sagely, um, I get it, I've got it, don't worry, I'll let you know kind of status at all. It's really important to keep saying this over and over again, because in a, in a time of phantom talking heads and so on, if you make it to the airwaves, you're already trafficking in this idea that you've got something fundamental to say. I don't accept that assumption at all. So I have to earn my way towards being listened to. I don't assume it by any stretch of the imagination, right? That's the first thing. So the second thing would be this. I don't have a plan. I don't have a scheme. I don't have the answers. I don't feel any obligation to have the answers. I think that is a seduction at least as fierce as anything that comes from the marketplace. As to the, you asked me about the youth culture, I think, earlier. A little bit of the new book has leaked out. In fact, I think I leaked it, but I forgot. So, but it's out there a little bit. And there's already been responses. And as I predicted in the book, and as I've said, whenever I've taught this material, the lion's share of the volatile reactivity against what I'm talking about comes from people my age and older. It's quite interesting. It's very important to observe it because ostensibly, at least, I wrote a book about elderhood for those people who are demographically in the ballpark, you see, not as an instruction manual, but as a plea. I'm pleading for them to reconsider what the latter half of their life is for. And they might say to me, who are you? And I say, well, I can answer the question, but it's not that relevant. Who am I to do such a thing? But I waited, frankly, for somebody else. And I stopped waiting. And I just decided, well, I'll just I'll kind of wade into this thing. And one of the most relied upon offenses is this allegation about youth culture. Now, I'm not pretending for one second that there's not such a thing or that it's it's the sexy beast and has been, well, since I was young myself, probably, you know, youth in and of itself is a value today. It's absolutely bizarre and it's everywhere. I grant all of that and it's pernicious in how it leans upon aging people and it leans upon people who begin to look their age when that is no longer a compliment. If it ever was a compliment to say to someone that you look your age, you don't look your age is more often a compliment. But for all of that, I would like to raise the ante about it all and say, I don't think it is in the realm or in the job description of being an elder to be thwarted in your elderhood by the dominant culture worshiping youth. Straight up, that's what I'm saying. I am laying the gauntlet down before all the older people who feel discredited by the youth culture, and I say, it's time to grow up. That's not a good enough reason, okay, to take your marbles and go home or stay inside the gated communities or just stick with your own age group or whatever else the decisions might be that ensue from that or the offense or the hurt or the feeling that you enjoy at best a kind of liminal status that nobody has any recourse to you anymore, that you've become, um, sorry, I forget the word in manufacturing terms, when the, the item is no longer necessary, it's been, it's been you know, co-opted by the latest new version of things, whatever the word is. It's just not enough. It's not good enough. And here's why. 
because the subtitle of the new book is The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. That's a very important thing for me to put in there because it is one thing to talk about, quote, elderhood in the abstract, although I don't think there is such a thing as elderhood in the abstract. It's another thing entirely, though, to wonder about what has become of elderhood in a time so utterly threatened and threatening, so utterly endangered and endangering, that the ante is upped on us all, because the time will come. It's already emerging, but the time will come when someone one half your age, even one third your age, will ask you in one way or another, when you were my age, they'll say to you, did you know what was happening? Now, with all of the information out there, how could you possibly say that you didn't know what was happening? And yet, you know yourself that it is more than possible, quote, not to know what's going on. More than possible. You could be looking in the wrong places. You could be listening to the wrong things. You could be not listening. You could be deciding that it's too late, that there's nothing to be done, that you're tired, that you worked already for 40 years in the marketplace. You don't need this, whatever it is. Okay, but that doesn't mean the question's not going to come. And it doesn't mean at some level, that person one third your age doesn't deserve an answer from the likes of you once you hit your 60s or your 70s. So what are you going to say? Because whatever you and I are doing today will contribute to whatever answer you have to give when that day comes. So somewhere in there, the answer is going to come to something like this. If you're willing to be really candid and not defend yourself, it might sound something like this. Well, everybody who wanted to know what was happening when I was your age could have known there was enough ways of finding out if you were brave enough and if you're heartbroken enough, you could have found out. But the truth is that when I was your age, not everybody wanted to know what was happening. So not everybody did. And that's a candid truth. You know, here's the other, here's the other question that will come along. Okay. So what did you do? And not only did I write the book with those two questions ringing in my ears, but I'm speaking to you now with those two questions ringing in my ears. And I can't imagine looking someone your age in the eye and saying, you know, it's just such a drag that everybody's worshiping youth. I just feel useless. And I take it as a personal insult or tragedy or worse. And I'm defeated by it. Given everything that's going on in this world right now, I'm afraid that that defeat is indefensible. It might be accurate emotionally and psychologically and spiritually accurate, but is indefensible given the troubled times that we're in. So last thing I'll say on this subject, then you could imagine or reimagine that elderhood's function is not a universal function, nor an eternal function, that the ways and means of elderhood are purely and properly a consequence of the times in which the elder finds himself or herself. In other words, your understanding of elderhood is dictated to you by the times that you occupy. So elderhood, first and foremost, is both a, a child of its time and 
in some way a redemption of its time. And it takes enormous courage of the heart and enormous discipline to take what you know about what's happening in this world and translate it to a purposeful or a purpose-driven life, I guess I would call it. But that is your practice for elderhood, to do that very translating. So I'll leave it there for now. some workshops last year with a dear friend, Nidia Alicia. And I remember her saying to this 
group of people, she was speaking as if she was the future generation back at us when we we're in our grandmother states. And she said, as, as the grandchild, what did you do, grandma? What did you do, elder, when you knew this was happening? And she would always say, look at these scars. Look at, look at this worn body. You know, when I found out, I gave my whole self. And I think it's such an important place to put ourselves in for those of us who are still in this youthful millennial state of um, how are we going to answer the future generations when they ask us, what did you do when you learned? And I think being able to stand in honesty, like you were mentioning, and maybe the answer is, I didn't want to know. I didn't have the courage to know. I didn't choose to look in the places that had the answers because, of course, we're in a time of so much information and this headline culture that it's coming at us at all moments of the day. This information becomes debilitating is one word, but desensitized. Thinking about can, that. Can you mm-hmm. interrupt you just for a second? Yes, please. Please don't forget what you're about to say now. But just on on the matter of too much information, consider the real possibility that what information is today is what consumer goods were 15 or 20 years ago. It is the current consumer good. It's the principal consumer good. It's what you can buy thinking that you're not even paying for it, right? And the total exposure that you have to this stuff is no different from walking down the main street of any town and being exposed to stuff. And it is, as you say, desensitizing in the extreme. Don't think for a second that that's not in the the scheme or the design, because it would appear that more information is giving you, quote, more choices. That's exactly what a consumer culture tells you about the number of brands of cola available to you at Walmart. It pretends that's a choice. And it's the same thing with this information, you know. The information in and of itself is a stillborn proposition. It has no inherent consequence at all. But one of the first consequences I see is that people are awash in impotence the more stuff they hear about. This is an absolutely staggering arrangement because it is so widely distributed now. It's not just in your generation. It's across the board that the more things that people quote-unquote know, the more stymied they are. So one of the principles that we engage here at the school and on the farm is put that damn thing away and don't take it out while you're here. And uh, you see people get the shakes because they're uh, it's like cold turkey on cigarettes. It's worse. Cold turkey on crack. That's what it is. And it's staggering to see what it's done to people in such a short time because the allegation is you're learning. You're not learning by turning those things on and finding out what happened in the Ukraine today. You're not learning. But if you are, you're learning a kind of program of impotence that is intensely information fed. It's so ghoulish. It's so demonic in its fashion. And it shows absolutely no sign of doubting itself, never mind reversing itself. So it's a very important, and I'll, please let's go back to what you're going to ask, but it's very important 
that people begin to seriously question to the point of undermining the assumption that more of anything grants you greater opportunity to respond, to react, to have a fulsome heart-engaged reaction or response to anything at all. It's demonstrably in your generation, no longer true. If it ever was true, it's not true anymore. I'm so happy that we're on this topic because I am somebody who was just consuming information. And it was almost like this addiction to a type of suffering of trying to take in as much bad news as I possibly could. And that's actually why I created the podcast, because at that point, five years ago, I was just in a state of just pure saturation. And it did lead me to this place of how do I possibly move on from here? Where do I go from here? And, and I think I'm learning and perhaps this is one way, but I'm trying to think strategically if we are to really shift circumstances, shift experiences, shift the way that this global corporate system is strangleholding cultures and Earth's ecosystems, it seems that we have to focus. We have to really focus and learn more deeply about certain topics. The headline culture is really... Uh, Specifically, it's how mm -hmm. it came to be as it is. Mm. If you're not careful, this turns into yet another. Now you're going to focus on more stuff, and that focus is going to help. No, no, no. No, we could say it this way. My parents came out of the Depression. Now, that might sound to you like about a thousand years ago, but it's not that long ago. And it had enormous consequence for that generation. Because when they came into their parenting time, they were desperate to see to it that their children had more in their childhood than the parents had when they themselves were children, right? Kids deserve more than I had when I was their age. That was a basic parenting strategy that was born out of trauma, the trauma called the depression. I mean, it suited a consumer culture beautifully, but it was almost a religion. Okay, so how do you call this into question? And the answer is, it's very dangerous to call a religion into question now. You're asking for it. But I would challenge deeply the idea that, that you and your generation or your children in their generation deserve more of anything than you had when you were their age or that I had when I was their age. In truth, your children will deserve less of everything you had. Now, by deserve, I don't mean they will be punished for the excesses of your generation or mine, although I think that's probably going to happen. I mean instead by using the word deserve, I'm saying it is their proper birthright to not be inundated in the way that we were, that they be spared in some fashion the, the pseudo choices of more of anything. And if we have any respect for them, any love for them in principle at all, we will try our best to engineer a world in which there are fewer or less of everything than there was when you came on the scene or when I did. And that includes less friggin' yammer, okay? By which I mean, wouldn't it be something if this ludicrous idea 
that everybody has an opinion, a right to an opinion and a right to express it and to be heard was challenged fundamentally and held to a standard of something like discipline or learnedness or something like wisdom, where the idea would come around that maybe your right to an opinion has to have the consequence of deepening, feeding, sustaining the culture. Not sustaining you, but the culture instead. You know, last thing about it. I'm asked fairly routinely now to lead people in uh, various ceremonial endeavors. I don't advertise it. I'm not advertising it now. But this observation comes from that. When I'm asked to do these weddings, one of the things you see is there's an understanding of, of a wedding ceremony that it's a, it's a rubber stamp upon how two people feel about each other. But that has never been what a marriage, oh, excuse me, a wedding is. A wedding is to craft something that isn't there now, that isn't there as a result of cohabitation, for example, isn't there as a result of common law union, that there is something fundamental it's the word used is matrimony, that matrimony happens as a consequence of people undertaking certain things, ceremonially speaking. Whenever I do these things, I see to it that symbolically and materially and in every other way I can think to do it, that I insert the culture and its problems and its betterment in between the two people that I am wedding. And I insist that it be there throughout the ceremony and after it. I literally put the world between these two people and their feelings for one another. My assumption being at least that how you feel about each other, if it passes through the world, you see, doesn't go directly back and forth between the two of you like a Pokemon game, but actually passes through the, the medium called the world, that the world is the beneficiary of your willingness to enter into this matrimony. Not the two of you, the world that has granted you virtually everything. So this is my way of you know, holding even the public yammer and my participation in it to some kind of standard that can have deep efficacy, that I'm not sitting here listening to myself talk, admiring the sound of my own voice, even though clearly I talk a lot. But I'm trying to speak in such a way that I would tend eventually towards silence, which I understand the responsibility of any elder to do is to work themselves out of a job. You see, if you're doing the work, you are less and less mandatory in the arrangement. If you're doing the work, they'll need you less and less. And I learned this when I was in the death trade. People would ask me all the time, oh, so you were there at the moment of death of all these hundreds or thousands of people, I say, no, no, I wasn't there. There is that many people that I was involved with. But if I was there at the end, man, that's a little ghoulish, isn't it? That I engineered an arrangement in which I was needed up to the point of death and even beyond. When in actual fact, if I'm serving these people at all, should I not be coming more and more obsolete in that function? Should they not be able to turn to each other and to their circle of companions and so on in their lives. And this death wisdom become democratic instead of more specialized, 
which is what's happening. It's becoming more specialized. It's no surprise. The dominant culture has a remarkable capacity to not change while appearing to change. And you are seeing that happen in this parallel universe now of these alternative death practitioners, the death doulas and all that. If you pay close attention to what they say that their job is, you will find it's another iteration of the job that's already there to help somebody die. But it never wonders what happens when the somebody in question doesn't want to die, refuses to die, won't understand themselves in those terms even. Who are you helping now? And what's your repertoire for being helpful and comforting and all the rest? That's what I called into question in that book, Die Wise. And this new one, I guess I'm calling into question the very notion that older people simply by their presence should be, quote, reassuring, unquote. There is a quote from the book that's handy in my mind right now. So I'd like to tell you because I'm proud of it, proud of that I came up with it. And it said something in the order of this. Elders call still water to rise when the people have forgotten their thirst.
I've been thinking a lot about the disparities between what we say we want as these children of the dominant culture and what we actually want in movements for social and environmental justice, per se. And I see true equity as being unachievable, and not even just true equity, I mean all the things even talking about as unachievable as long as there is capitalism and addiction to consumption and addiction to staying alive and youthful and so on and so forth. For example, even if racial fissures and economic fissures were equalized or healed in the United States, the surface of long lines of slave labor and earth suffering would barely be scratched globally. So I wonder, what are your thoughts on equity, fairness, and freedom for humanity as realities versus idealistic illusions that just make us feel better when we say we're fighting for them? This is a very well-wrought question, and it's it's a bit overwhelming. You know, anybody who leaps into the fray with a ready answer to the question that you've just asked is not to be relied upon necessarily. And so I, I don't have a one size fits all, don't worry about it kind of response to that. I would say that confoundment that you described is a mandatory confoundment to have when faced on the one side with the, with the systemic deep injustices that you've identified. Yes, indeed. Historically and in a contemporary way, the dilemmas that you've articulated about deep inequity are systemic, show no sign of backing off and uh, and bedevil and bedraggle any attempt to wrangle any other kind of fundamental change. Absolutely true. All I would say in support of your confoundment would be this. One of the things that really concerns me about people coming to me with this kind of global scaled conscience is that they tend, from what I can see, to be in some fashion both enraged and paralyzed simultaneously and without realizing that one begets the other, that the rage, as understandable as it is, is a midwife for the impotence. You know, you're rising up against nothing. There's nobody there. The forces that you're talking about, that you'd like to take on, it's sort of Don Quixote style, right? You're looking for the windmill. The bad guys concentrated in one place. But the bad guys, quote unquote, are way ahead of you in this regard. They don't sit in one place waiting for you to find them, right? That's not how it works. The caginess necessary to understand the arrangement confounds your easy take on right and wrong. Okay, right and wrong are two possibilities now, but they're not. Everything doesn't divide up that way into right. It's too confounding. The people that you would want to, quote, free from the the shackles are also beneficiaries of the arrangement that you've that you've articulated. So you're not going to get a lot of takers as soon as you try to operationalize this kind of paralyzed conscience kind of macro level insight thing. The principal reason being that um, our take on what constitutes human has been really compromised 
by the dilemmas you've described. Here's an example. We have one word, human, in the English language. We have another word, humane. Ever wondered what the difference is between the two of them? Because they're two different words, there's just an E that separates them. Or is there? Well, I can tell you this as somebody who worked in the death trade. It was often claimed by people who were in support of euthanasia that physician-assisted death is humane. How so? Because it solves a world of problems. Does it? How does it do that? Well, it ends the, the suffering of the person who's dying. Really? How does it end their suffering? By ending their life and their consciousness, as far as we know. I see. Are there any problems that euthanasia doesn't solve? Dead air. A question that's never wondered about. So I'll wonder about for you now. Absolutely, the answer is, oh man, there's all kinds of problems that euthanasia doesn't solve. Suffering problems that it doesn't solve. Like what? Well, like this one. You know, when this person was dying badly and they finally opted for euthanasia and they lived in a jurisdiction where it's legal and they, they had recourse to it and they did it, quote, successfully. Can you do the math on what the learning consequence is for the younger people in attendance at that event? I'll do the math for you. It's this. Dying, I don't know if you can swear on your program, but here we go. Dying can be such a up enterprise that it can drive you to the absolute cliff edge of sanity and beyond. That is in the nature of dying. So the best death is the least death, meaning the one that has the least conscious approach to it, the least time to do it in. These are all solutions too. When you opt for euthanasia, you are reinforcing the idea that death is unendurable. Unendurable. That's one of the inadvertent consequences of this pseudo-revolution in the death trade of people having control over their own endings. Didn't we say at the beginning of our conversation, well, I did, I guess, that one of the signal features of elders is that they are crafted by the troubles of their times and that our shortage of elders is directly traceable to our shortage of limits, our unwillingness to be limited. Okay. Then go back to euthanasia and ask yourself, is this an exercise of limit or is this a way of pushing the limits ever further away from us so that you don't even have to die? No, I'll say it differently. So that there's no longer any such thing as your time to die. And there isn't. That's happened during your lifetime and it's not coming back. So what God of life are you serving when you decide you'll die when you want to die, not when you're dying. What God is being served? Well, you know which one, the marketplace God, same old God. And by the same token, to take this confounding understanding to the dilemmas that you've described, I really want to say, I support enormously anybody wrangling this thing and being utterly defeated by it from time to time. Because the young people who come to me have two things in their hands. One is impotent rage. And the other one is this kind of mangled conscience. It's a kind of anxiety conscience masquerading as a conscience. It's like a program of being undone, imagining that this isn't a deeply achieved thing. 
Some people think that that's what I'm advocating. All I'm talking about is learning how things got to be as they are and having your peace of mind, your sense of well-being take a more or less permanent hit by virtue of being willing to learn this stuff. Then and only then do you begin, I think, to craft the possibilities of a, quote, change. I'm not sure I'm, I'm someone who trusts programmatic, large-scale, prescribed change, frankly. I don't know why, but I just don't. Instinctively, it seems to me that the principal responsibility for a changed world lies with the people who are this world's beneficiaries. Not the bosses, the leaders, not the new leaders, not the leaders who claim they aren't leaders, not those guys, but the rank and file people. And, you know, I just have to say it, and it's going to sound a little cynical, but good luck appealing to people to try to change the world who are just making it through. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, again, for spending this time with me and with all those who will listen and the mind takes a deep sigh, a deep breath and rearranges all of its little tracks that it makes, which I'm very grateful to you for. You've definitely given us a lot to chew on. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm, I'm honored by it as well. So let us continue as best as we can. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was by Jess Williamson from the record label Mexican Summer. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, research director, Madison Mogolski, media director, Molly Lebov, and research assistant, Francesca Glassbell. Please help us continue making this podcast free every week by heading over to Drip, which is d.rip slash four dash the dash wild to make a contribution and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks so much. And until next time.